0: Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and jump back into 1 John. Uh, we took a break last week, but we're going to be back in 1 John today. We're going to look at the last couple of verses of chapter 2 and then into chapter 3. But before we dive into that, I wanted just to pause and kind of uh, grab our attention real quickly. One of the things that uh, early on, Danny mentioned something about praying before our, the, our gatherings on Sunday morning. So 8.15 to 8.30, we have a kind of, we lock down the I don't know if lockdown's the word, but we shut down kind of the doors of the auditorium. And anyone, it doesn't have to be, going don't have to be on the worship team or be a part of leadership, anyone's welcome to come. And just for 15 minutes, we spend time just in reflection and prayer per, to prepare our hearts for what God wants to do. Uh, in our lives and in our services together. And so we've been doing that over the last uh, three weeks to a month or so. We're hearing God speak to us and being prepared for what's going on. But one of the things that we discover when we do that, and that's why I wanted just to pause before we jump into 1 John, is that we, it causes us to break the routine that we get stuck in every Sunday of just coming to church and doing the same thing over and over again. And I've found in my life that the, the greatest enemy to change and transformation is routine because it puts us to sleep. And even right now, it's okay, we had great worship, we just had offering and announcements, now Pastor John comes, I know the protocol, and so you've already started to kind of, whether you know it or not, you've started to just enter into the normal rhythm and routine, and sometimes what happens is when we engage routine, we disengage our heart and our mind, and we miss what God wants to do. And the reason I say that is that I'm convinced that if we just gather together to hear cool music, and someone stand up and talk for 30 minutes, and then we leave, then all we are is a good club, we're not a church. What sets us apart from the world around us is the dynamic of God's presence in our lives and in our gatherings, and if we don't experience that, then we should just go to the local country club and hang out and have a good time, because there has to be this dynamic, and that's why I'm convinced, we were talked about this last week, you talked about the work of the Holy Spirit and how he empowers us, that when we gather and when we live and wherever we are, God is present, and if we don't believe that and lean in on that, we will miss out on what God wants to do. And so I've been trying to, to live in the reality that, that every single day and every time we gather as a church, that I am expecting and anticipating that God will do something profound in my life and in the lives of other people. And I'm not that we work that up and somehow positive think it into existence, but when we do this, there's something in us that leans in and our eyes are open to see what God's going to do. Because I've watched it happen in a gathering where someone will walk out completely transformed by God's Spirit and someone will walk out and complain about something. And you're like, were you in the same gathering? What was the difference between the two? One was engaged and one was disengaged. And as a church, we have to fully engage in our lives and in our gatherings. So I'm just going to pray, but I want us. and I'm not saying, oh, because I'm going to just preach this great message. And you're going to be, wow, that has nothing to, this is not what I'm going to do. I'm, we're going to get into the word, but I want God's spirit to speak to us today, what he wants to do. Are we ready to lean in on that? Amen. All right, let me pray. Lord Jesus, we, we are convinced that you are present because you have deposited your spirit in us and when we gather, we know that your presence is here because you are, you are all places. But that means that if you're here, then you want to bring a touch of your kingdom into our lives in this moment. And so I pray whatever it is for each one of us, Lord Jesus, get our hearts, get our minds, get our attention so that we hear you. And that at the end of the day, we can know that we've encountered you and what you desire for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to talk about, we've been, we're in the series Authenticity and talking about what it looks like to live fully integrated lives in our faith. And so today in the passage we're going we're gonna to focus in on authentic faith. And what I mean by the term authentic faith is faith that you know is genuine and real and what John highlights in, in 1 John here. But before we, we get into the specifics of the passage, you need to understand one of the, the defaults that we have when we go through a text like this or we go through a message which we're about to walk through together is the outcome for us is this. I hear these things and they're really good and all it translates across to me is that I just got to work harder and be better. That's legalism. That's the law. And what happens is that we look at the things that our faith should be in terms of authenticity, and we think, I just have to work harder at number two or number four on that list. And if I work harder, then I'll be a better Christian. If that's what we come away with, then we've missed it. Because what this is about, what John lists, we're going to go through seven things in the passage we're going through, is not justification for our faith, it's verification and evidence that it's there. There's a huge difference. We, a lot of us live in in the verification mode or the justification mode, excuse me, that is I do this because I'm trying to justify to myself and to other people that I'm a true Christian. And if we're honest with ourselves, we are motivated by that. That's not faith. That is the law. That That is the religion that we've created on our own. But what faith does is it actually is verified by things that we discover are true about our lives that weren't true before because Jesus is transforming us. Put it in this way, there, there are a lot of people who play basketball, but there are only a handful of people who are actually basketball players. Does it make sense? A lot of people think, like, yeah, I like to go play basketball, but really, actually, there's only probably less than 1% of the, of the population that would say those are basketball players. And they get paid lots of money to do it. And there's a difference, why? Because it comes something that's coming natural from who they are. And the same thing is true. A lot of people know of Jesus and would claim to follow Jesus, but there are really only a handful of followers of Jesus. And the reason is because there's been something inside of them that has transformed their soul, not something they've added to the outside to make themselves better and feel as though they have an authentic faith. So what we're doing this morning, I'm asking you to not go outward, but to go inward in terms of, we're like, it's like your faith is in this box. And we're going to open the box this morning, and, and instead of trying to add things from the outside, we're just going to see what is there what's there and what's missing. And if there are things that John lists that we're going to go through that are missing, we don't go outside looking for them to add them in. We go deeper in Jesus and say, God, where is it that you want to transform my soul? Where is it that you want to bring change in my life that I can't do it on my own? And then let God do what he wants to do this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let me start in verse 28 of chapter 2 in First John, and then I'll read to verse 10 of chapter 3. So John says, And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will ha- has not yet been appear, or appeared, but what we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who practice, it makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. But this is evident in uh, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, that is a mouthful. That is a ton there. You're like, okay, I'm done. Let's close our Bibles and go home, right? But let's just kind of walk through this because there's so many important things that John highlights about what our authentic faith looks like in terms of the evidence that it's there. So the first thing is in, the, in verse 29 and then the first verse of chapter 3, which is this, authentic faith, the evidence of it is that I know I have experienced a new birth. I know that there's something new and different about me. Because John says, if you know that he is righteous, then you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, and he gives us a new identity. We were born of him, and so we're called children of God. We're not children of the world. We're even, in reality, we're not children of our parents. We're children of God, which means we are, in fact, Jesus had this great encounter with a man named Nicodemus who came with a religious world worldview that says, what, must, what, what more do I have to do to get the kingdom or to get eternal life? And Jesus says, no, 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 you're missing it. You have to be born again. You have to be renewed. You have to be transformed from the inside out. And that's a struggle for us because we want to just apply principles and new techniques and new good things that we do in our life. And Jesus says, no, 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 it comes from the inside. You have to be born in a new way. There has to be something new in you. There has to be new life breathed in you, especially at the moment of our brokenness where we realize that we've sinned and we realize how desperate we are for Jesus that we need new life breathed into us. And how do you know that your faith is real? You have experienced a dynamic in your life that is something so new and overwhelming that you know you cannot explain it other than the fact that it has to be supernatural. That God has done something in you. You know that you've been transformed. You begin to think differently and act differently. It's not something that you've manufactured. You know that it's real. It's that infusion of God's power and God's spirit in you because he is in the process of saving you and saving your soul. It's not unlike in a physical reality, what, what people have figured out over years, and now it's actually called cheating, which is the way our systems work, the way our bodies work, is that red blood cells will take oxygen when oxygen gets transferred into energy so that you can live and have energy. And so the higher blood, or red blood cell count you have in your blood, the more oxygen you have, the more energy you have. And so athletes over the years have figured this one out. So they realize that when they are exerting energy and they're working hard, that their blood gets depleted. But if they infuse themselves with bloods, red blood cells that will take oxygen, they can get a, a boost in energy. And now it's called blood doping, and it's actually illegal in sports. In fact, it was probably made most famous by a guy that most of us know. His name is Lance Armstrong. And what Lance was doing, which a lot of other cyclists would do, was that in in a moment where they they knew that they had a high concentration of red blood cell counts, uh, blood cells in their blood, they would take blood out, and then when they were depleted, they would infuse themselves with their own blood, and then they'd have energy again. Sounds like a great thing. You're like, I could use that every morning. Coffee doesn't work it for me. It won't do it for me, right? But what, what in a, in a sense, what this is true in our spiritual reality is that God comes by the power of His Spirit, and He infuses new life into us, so that we sense something completely different about our lives. And and I don't even know as I'm explaining this right now, some of us in this room, you're like, yeah, you know, I've gone to church, I never had that, I never had that experience where something new and transformative is happening on the inside of me, and that's where you're looking in that box of faith this morning and saying, what am I missing? What dimension of who Jesus is have I not encountered yet in my life that I have not yet to experience that? Second thing, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3, is that authentic faith also means that I know I will see Jesus someday. There's this confidence, this overriding understanding and reality that I'm going to see Jesus. Because John says, Beloved, we are God's, uh, are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What is John saying? He's saying if you truly have authentic faith, one of the things that will drive your life is the reality that you will see Jesus someday. It is not this kind of drawing reality that says okay i'm done i'm gonna check out i'm gonna stop living now because someday i'm gonna see jesus and i'm just gonna move to a mountaintop and i'm gonna stockpile food and wait for him to come back that's not what this is saying what it is saying is that you live with the reality every single day of your life that if you die you know you will see jesus but if jesus returned you will see him either way in your lifetime you will see jesus And that drives us because we know that our lives are bigger than what we live out. This bigger than the mundane kind of day in and day out of going to work and sitting in traffic and all the things that we do, there's this bigger reality going on that Jesus is going to return someday. I'm going to see him. He's going to appear. I'm going to be like him. And if that reality doesn't ever come onto your radar, then you have to question is my faith authentic? Is it real? Because this is the bigger picture that we miss. Because what does that do when when we live in that reality that that Jesus is returning, that we will see him face to face? It always infuses this thing called hope. That no matter how difficult my circumstances, how bad the world gets, Jesus is still going to return someday. Or when I die and exit this world, I'm going to see him face to face. And because of that, in the midst of the most difficult times in my life, there's this deep-seated hope that I have because nothing is greater than Jesus. Now, as a pastor, I have a, a different perspective on, on, on death and on things like this because I end up in situations which are life and death a lot. I have done so many memorials and funerals in my life and been with people who have watched people die. I've been with family members who have lost loved ones. And it's, I can always sense early on if people have embraced who Jesus is because they have either this overriding hope That either they know that their loved one is with Jesus, or even in the midst of them dying and them not knowing if they know for sure, there's in the midst of this darkness, there's this life in them. There's this hope. But the opposite is true, that when they don't have that, when they don't know Jesus, there's the lack of hope. There's hopelessness, and I see it all the time. One of the worst, I should say probably not the best term, but, but one of the most difficult funerals I ever had to do was for an 18-year-old young man who died when he drowned fleeing from the police up in Oregon. He's, he, he had exited his car to run on foot, not realizing that what used to be a creek had become a river. He stepped into it and got swept away. And so we went to, I went to do his funeral. The only thing the family could afford was a pine box in this little back roads cemetery and it was one of those cold days in Oregon. It was 30 degrees. And so we're standing outside, and it's 30 degrees, and he has a 16-year-old girlfriend who was pregnant with his son. And she's just wa- weeping over this, this pine box. And so the family shared, and I remember Kim and I walked into this, and I'm like, Lord, I, I, I can't do this. You have to do this. And I remember I spent time the most, and even if I didn't mean to be offensive, but I was so clear about what the gospel provides to us and who Jesus is and the hope that we have. That was one of the darkest services that I've ever experienced. And the reason why is that as soon as you walked in to this, this cemetery, there was no hope. Because nobody knew Jesus. It's one of the reasons I know I was there was to help them know that there is hope. But then the opposite is true. When people have that hope, it changes everything. I did a funeral service for a lady who lived at the age of 80. And when we did the memorial service, it was crazy. I know the difference when I walk into a room because normally when people know Jesus and they go to a memorial, it feels like church, which is really weird. People don't come in and sit by themselves. They actually talk to each other and the level of the volume goes up. And I have to tell people, can you please quiet down? We need to remember the person who died. Okay, it's kind of one of those feelings. And so this was kind of that feeling. So we started the service and one of the things that this mom had instilled in her boys was this ability to sing and the love of songs and worship. So they asked, they said, hey, can we come up and sing hymns with people? And I'm like, you can do whatever you want. This is for your mom. So these three guys get up, and I remember I stood at the back of the stage, and I'm watching, and they're like in, you know, three-part harmony, leading the church, and it's like everyone's standing and clapping. I'm like, okay, is this Sunday morning, or is this a memorial? And the difference was the room was filled with people who had hope because they had this, this understanding that not only was mom with Jesus, but in their lives, they were going to experience the same thing, and they were going to see Jesus. And if you don't have that that kind of embedded in your brain or on your radar that as you live your daily life, there's this bigger picture going on of Jesus' return or seeing Jesus, then maybe there's something in your faith that's not quite authentic yet. It hasn't reached the place that Jesus has for you. Third thing, we know our faith is authentic when I know that I'm a sinner and Jesus is my Savior. And I know that sounds really, really basic. But John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness, and he says in verse 5, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So John's highlighting the reality of sin in our life, that there is sin, but Jesus showed up to take away sin. So there's two realities. In order for Jesus to take away sin, we have to realize that we are sinners, And for some of us, we get that. For others of us, sin is something that happened once or twice in my life, or sin is something that is only in my past, and I never have an issue today. I'm all better, everything's fine, and me and Jesus are moving on. That's living in a world of illusion, because we still have a human nature, that Jesus is trying to and working to transform and renew us so that we are new in him. But that is always a reality in this world that we always have the capacity to sin, And if we come to a place in our life where we don't think that we have that capacity, then we enter into pride, and pride will never allow us to grow because we think that we're perfect. Even though we don't say that we are, but we live that way. Like, I never really have to, you know, worry about sin because that's something in my past. But knowing the reality is is that the enemy is always at work trying to get us to stumble. And one of the best things—this is going to sound really strange—but one of the best things— For us in following Jesus is to be in touch with the fact that we are broken human beings. It's not to live in that in depression, but to know that we are broken and we are sinners. Because what does sin do? One of the upsides of sin, I'm not telling you to go out and sin, okay? But one of the upsides of sin is that it humbles you, it forces you to come to grips with your brokenness and that you're not perfect. Because one of the things that we need more than anything sometimes in our life is a good dose of humility. And sometimes that comes in the form of humiliation. Because it means that I have to come to grips with it, that I don't have it all together. Therefore, if I know I'm a sinner, that means I need a Savior. That means I need Jesus. If I'm not a sinner, then I don't need Jesus. I'm wasting my time in His. But all of us are sinners. The uh, first basketball game Jordan played on his travel team in fifth grade was probably one of the worst games his team played in fifth grade. Jordan will probably remember this game well. So we're coaching, and all the dads who are coaching you believe that your son is like next to Michael Jordan, right? You think that your team is going to annihilate everybody. And so we get into this tournament in Portland, and so we go up against the first team, and their name, this is the name of the team, was Portland Elite. And I'm thinking, yeah, you're just trying to talk it up. Elite what? This is fifth grade boys basketball. There's nothing elite about it, right? So they go into the game, and we see the guys warming up, and their, their team's no taller than ours. They look about the same size, nobody's really big, and so we're like, oh, this should be pretty competitive. They lost by 44 points. It wasn't even a game. I mean, it was like watching a really highly competitive basketball or high school team play like five-year-olds. And we were just watching this go, and it's really hard after you get blown by 44 points in your first game to pull these fifth-grade boys together, like, it's going to be okay. They're like, oh my gosh, my life is over, right? Right, Jordan? (laughs) You felt that way. But the, kind of the icing on the cake was after the game was over, their coach walks over to me, and he hands me his business card. And it says Portland Elite. And he goes, just wanted you to know, I do clinics on how to teach boys how to play basketball. <laughs> and he goes, and he said it in a nice way, but it, was, it, was, it hurt. He said, you know, it's, it's apparent that your boys need just a little bit of work. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to admit it, but you're Right. And I remember that, that after we started into the season, that was the best thing that could have happened to them. The best thing was to lose by 44 points in the opening game. Why? Because it made them hungry. It made them realize that the competition level is so much higher, and they had so much more to grow in and learn in. And I think the same things is true. Listen to me. I'm not endorsing sin for, this, for humiliation's sake, okay? But I am saying you, have, you and I have to be in touch with our brokenness to know that we are susceptible to sin, that we, by nature, are sinners apart from Jesus, and when we stay in reality of that, then we realize how much, de- how deeply we need Jesus. And that's what John's talking about, is that I know my faith is real when I know I'm a sinner, but I need Jesus. And then the fourth thing, our, our faith is uh, authentic when we understand ongoing patterns of sin have been broken in my life. It doesn't mean that I don't sin, but it means the patterns in the habitual behavior that has kept me from Jesus is now beginning to change. John says this in verse 6. He says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. He's saying, listen, you can't see and experience and know Jesus and then just keep on sinning. You can't. Because it means you haven't seen him, you don't know him. Because it will change you when you know him, when you, when you experience who he is. And I think that's one of the things that happens when you have a genuine experience with Jesus. You understand because of his death on the cross how deeply we need his forgiveness for him to take sin off of us. If, if you have that, something will change in your life in such a way that you have not orchestrated. In fact, what it, what it looks like so many times is that the outflow of your life begins to change in a way that you haven't defined. Let me explain that. I think one of the things that we have a tendency to do when we come to Jesus is that we have it all programmed out. So, okay, I'm gonna pray the prayer with you. You give your life to Jesus and now go do these 10 things and you'll be a good follower of Jesus. Isn't that true? And so we, we do that. We think, okay, I just I gotta get the principles of morality and character and integrity and I don't wanna do that thing, that's bad. I wanna do this, this is good. But we miss the whole point is that if Jesus has transformed us from the inside out, something happens in us so organically that we begin to live differently without a script. We don't have it scripted for us. Perfect example is Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. The saddest thing about Zacchaeus is all we know him for is he was short. That's it. That's like, you know, you sing the little song when you're in in Sunday school? Poor Zacchaeus. We get to heaven. We all owe him an apology. His story is so much bigger than his height, okay? But the story is a powerful story because Zacchaeus so desired to encounter Jesus. He climbs a tree, and then Jesus invites himself over to lunch. And so when he's at Zacchaeus' house, we don't have the sneak preview or or sneak peek. We don't have a camera. We don't have anybody recording the dialogue between Zacchaeus and Jesus in Zacchaeus' house. We don't have that. But we see the outcome of it. Zacchaeus was a tax collector who had been ripping off his own people for years. He had lacked integrity. He had no morality. He was a really wealth man and was driven by greed. That was who he was. But he encounters Jesus, and I can guarantee you, I'm like 99.9% sure Jesus did not tell him to respond this way, but how does Zacchaeus respond to Jesus? He said, Listen, I've been ripping people off. He said, I, I, And because of that, I'm going to repay everything that I've stolen from people. In fact, I'm not just going to pay, pay it back, I'm going to pay four times what I had stolen from people. Why is that so significant? Because the law only required two times. So, where did that script come from? It didn't come from anywhere, but Jesus transforming Zacchaeus' soul so profoundly that he started living differently. And that's, I believe, what we have to understand that if I've had this encounter with Jesus, I just don't keep on sinning and I don't get the script to try to make myself better. I realize from the inside out, I want to live differently. And God gives me this uni- kind of renewed sense of understanding and power through the work of the Holy Spirit that helps me to become somebody who doesn't continually live in habitual sin all of my life. Because I'm convinced Jesus doesn't want us to stumble into heaven. He wants us to walk into heaven side by side with him. And he wants to transform us. Of course, we will always deal with our own sin. But there's something about the, the the pattern of sin now being broken in us that we know that Jesus is at work in our lives. And three more things. Verses 7 and 8. Our faith is authentic if we understand that my life reflects Jesus instead of the enemy. John goes on. He says, Little children, let, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is, talking about Jesus. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So, basically, John's saying, listen, there's no real middle ground here. You're either performing works of the devil, or you're performing works of God. That's kind of the way it works. There's kind of no middle ground. And so, when that's true of our life, that means that what happens when we become followers of jesus is that now over time jesus begins to transform us in such a way that our lives reflect more of who he is than who the devil is reflects more of who jesus is than our own sin nature where the enemy participates in trying to get us to stumble and get us to trip up and to get us to sidetrack from jesus but if we understand that that's true that means over time there's moments of transformation but over time we start to look more like jesus we start to think more like him We start to do things like he did. Why? Because there's something inside of us that's transforming. And what's important about this is that that means that in our faith, there is a progression. There is a continuum. There is a journey. There is a difference that you and I change over time. That if faith is genuine, faith is not the same. And why that's important is because so many times when we came to faith in Jesus and we go through a hard time, what's the first thing we want to do? We want to go back to the beginning. Oh, if I could just go back and be like it used to be. Man, when I first was passionate for God and everything was working, and now my life's a mess and I question if God is real. I just want to go back to that moment. You can't go back. Why? Because you're becoming more like Jesus And sometimes that's difficult, but that means to know that you have authentic faith means your faith doesn't look like it did 10 years ago. It can't, because then you have to question, do you have any faith? There's a thing called maturity, that growth happens, and that's why change happens. And so if you've known Jesus 75 years, you should look and act and think different than 75 years ago, and that's true for the church As well, the church doesn't look like it did 2,000 years ago. And that's not just cultural. It's because there's this progression of understanding that God is moving in the world. God is changing us and transforming us. And that means that each one of us has to come to grips with when we hang on to the past or what we used to be, and we want our faith to be what it used to be, or we want to hang on to what it is now, then we have to ask the question, is my pride getting in the way of what God really wants to do? Or am I letting it go? I'll tell you, I've gone through three or four seasons of my life where there was this accelerated change that God brought about my understanding of who he is. And it always came in moments where I put him in a box, I had him nice and neat and tame, and he was comfortable for me, and then he destroyed the box and destroyed my life. And I was so glad that he did. And my life started to change. I started living differently. And I've shared, I did that while I was pastoring and freaked out our church because they're like, who is you? Who are you? You're not the guy that I came in with three years ago who was pastoring. You're a different guy. I'm like, yeah, isn't it great? Jesus is changing me. You're like, no, we like the old guy. I'm like, I don't want to be the old guy. I want to be the one that Jesus is working in every single day and changing my life. Changing who I am so that ultimately I begin to reflect more and more of who he is and less and less of what I used to be and what the enemy wants me to be because I'm different. So if you're the same that you were 10, 15, 20 years ago, then go deep into your faith and say, okay, what's missing? What is it that Jesus wants to do in me to make me what he wants me to be? Then there's the sixth thing, and that is if our faith is authentic, that means I can no longer tolerate sin in my life. It doesn't necessarily mean that we stop sinning, but there's something that changes in us. John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. There's that that imagery again, born again. So what John is saying, listen, is you can't keep on sinning like nothing's ever happened. Why? Because God's planted his seed, and his seed is the Holy Spirit in you as a guaranteeing of your salvation. And in that, what happens is that every action, every thought, every behavior now that you are involved in, guess who's with you? The God of the universe through his spirit. Yikes. Think about that. That means in a good way God ruins sin for you. You know that thing that used to be so much joy in your life and pleasure and you used to love to go to that when you were going through stress and difficult times and you went to that behavior even though you knew it was wrong because you could get some relief. You lose that following Jesus. Isn't that great news? It's because God ruins you to sin. You can't keep on sinning. You just can't keep on doing it like you used to do it. And that's why it's kind of, for some people, that's why people think, oh, i become a Christian. You can't have fun anymore. No, it means you can't go back to the things that used to bind you and control you because you've been set free from them. There's something more that God has for you. But we get stuck in those and we go back. But God says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to let you enjoy that anymore. You, you're destroyed. You're ruined. And so there should be not just this, I can't enjoy this anymore. There comes a place in our journey of faith that eventually, not is it that we don't enjoy it anymore, we actually become repulsed by it. We actually don't even want any part of it anymore because we realize the destruction it'll bring in our lives and the lives of other people that happens in us. It reminds me of the, the movie Super Size Me. You know, Morgan Spurlock ate McDonald's for 30 days to show what it would do to his body. And like the kind of the climax of that movie is he goes to the drive-thru and he forces himself to eat a double cheeseburger, super-sized meal. So the biggest drink, the biggest burger, and the biggest fries that you can get at McDonald's. And he forces it down himself, because he, he, he's a pretty healthy guy as it is, but he's just forcing it. And then they show in all great detail when his body, his body says, oh no, I don't think so. You're, you're not gonna, we're not eating this. And he just launches all of it back out. It's, it's horrible for Morgan Spurlock, but it's, it's great great to see what, what your body does when it says, no, 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 this doesn't belong in here. I can't take that much crap. I can't take, sorry, that's a Greek word that means not good for you, okay? <laughs> I can't take that food. And it just comes out. Well... It comes out either way, okay, if you want to get, you know, understand it. So, all right, I'm going to stop there because if we go much further, it's going to get worse. So, the understanding is what? What happened to his body? It rejected it. If you and I truly know Jesus, what's going to happen to sin in our life? We're going to start to reject it. If you don't reject sin and you keep living in it, what does that say of what's going on inside of you? You've yet to fully come to know him. Maybe you haven't experienced the depth of what God wants to do in your life. And then the final thing is this is that authentic faith, the evidence of it, is that I love others more than myself. Verse 10, John says, But this is uh, evident, uh, who are children of God and who are children of the devil, whoever does not practice practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's what I love when it goes from kind of this general thing to then John goes, boom. If you don't love your brother, you don't love your sister, then maybe your faith isn't real. And that's important. Why is that important? Because we can love people who are easy to love, but we struggle with people who are hard to love. We can probably come with 10 people that are easy to love, but boy, it's those one or two that are difficult that we struggle with. But Jesus said one of the marks of what it means to have authentic faith when the world looks at you that sees you're different than them is love. He says this in John 13, 34 and 35, a new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, but by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love or have love for one another. Now, love doesn't mean that we just tolerate people around us, that we just kind of put up with them until Jesus comes back and say, yeah, I'll pat you on the back, I can't stand you, but, you know, I, I love you, right? That's not what it's talking about. Love is this genuine commitment. This is, it's this action, it's this decision that I'm going to genuinely engage with this person and care for them, even though it might be difficult to. Why is that so significant? Because this very thing that, that John's talking about, that Jesus talked about, is the very thing that the world cannot do. Can't. The world cannot genuinely love the world. The world genuinely loves those people who think like, act like, look like, believe like the world. But when somebody looks different, acts different than the world, they can't love. What's the beauty of the church? The beauty of the church is found in its diversity. Diversity of background, diversity of ethnicity, diversity of stages of life. All those. That's the beauty of when you bring all these people from different mindsets and backgrounds and you unify them under Jesus, the world looks at that and goes, oh, we don't have that. We don't have that. How can you put a flaming liberal Democrat and a ultra-right-wing conservative Christian in the same room and then find love? It doesn't work in our country, does it? It works in the church. And some of you are like, already screaming right now. No, it's not. (laughs) No, it's not. Because if you're a conservative, you're saying liberals are going to hell. And if you're a liberal, you're saying conservatives are going to hell. And you're all wrong, and you're all going to hell, okay? (laughs) What's the point? The point is this. How can God take a Buddhist and a Muslim and put them in the same room And bring unity only through Jesus. How can God bring different ethnicities that have fought for centuries and bring them in unity only under Jesus? No politics, no government, no war can do that. And that's why this is so important. So what is the outward sign of inwardly being transformed? Is that I actually have genuine love for people. That I actually choose out of action to love somebody who's not very lovable in my mind. And that's difficult, but that's what God gives us the power to do that. That's the game changer in Christianity. The world should look at the church and say, man, what do they got? We can't get along. All politicians talk about, except for Donald Trump, obviously, all politicians talk about bringing unity in our country, right? They can't do it. How many presidents have we had? A lot. How much unity has our our, our country had? Not a lot. Why? Because politics can't unite people. They only, only drive us apart. Jesus unites people. Why? Because we remember that we're all sinners and we're broken before Him. So it doesn't matter my background, it doesn't matter my political persuasion, it doesn't matter my ethnicity. It doesn't even matter my sexual orientation as we journey towards Jesus. All that matters is that I come under Jesus and I find unity because we all realize that we're broken and we need Jesus. I don't know what it takes for you, and I'm ask the worship team to come and join me on a practical step and then I'm going to pray and we'll, we'll continue we'll finish with worship but one of the things that you and I have to come to grips with about love and that being an authentic expression of our faith is that love is not an emotion love causes emotion but it's not an emotion love is a choice and a commitment and that means to actually genuinely love somebody I have to make a choice in practical ways to demonstrate that and so for me, I know that that means I have to break patterns and, and, and rely on Jesus to break patterns in my life that allow me to choose people over myself, to put other people first, because I know by my nature I'm a sinner and I will always make me first. Anybody want to admit that's true of you? So one, I'm just giving, this one thing that I do, and this is, you may think this is not a big deal, but this is significant. This actually helps me, okay? God has given many of us a wonderful gift called the smartphone and it's going to get really real here practical okay and i have an iphone and i'm praying for you phone a samsung you'll get saved someday okay <laughs> but on every smartphone regardless of the manufacturer you're going to find some app that will give you a way to do reminders or a calendar and because routine is the enemy of change breaking the routine brings the change many times that god wants to have happen in our life So on my phone, I have many reminders, but I have one that goes off on my phone every single morning at 7 a.m. And it has one simple phrase. It's not about you. Every single morning after I've kind of woken up, that reminder goes off and says to you as you go into your day, you're going to want, everything within you is going to want to say it's about your needs and you being happy and what you want to do. And that little reminder, which I believe God's using by the work of the Holy Spirit to use technology to remind John today today's not about you. It's about Kim, Courtney, Jordan. It's about the church. It's about the world. It's about the city of Simi Valley. And ultimately, it's about Jesus. And I've realized when that reminder comes in, in fact, Kim knows it now. It's been on my, my phone long enough. When it goes off at seven, she goes, I know what that is. And I have a loving wife who doesn't hold that over me. She goes, no, it's not about you. It's about me. She doesn't do that. I'm thankful she doesn't do that. But what it is, is this constant reminder. So when I go into my day, I, I catch myself. I catch myself going down that road where I'm not choosing love, but I'm choosing myself. And God's saying, no, 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 remember, remember the reminder. It's, it's not about you today. And I'll, I'm, I'm telling you, this is the strangest thing. Kim and I both experienced this. When I get to the end of the day, and I've allowed that reminder to remind me more than I have forgotten it, I'll get to the end of the day and there'll be a sense of peace and happiness in me. Because there wasn't moments in my day where it was all about me and because I realized when it's about me, my life stinks. It does. Life is horrible when it's about us because when it's about us, we never get our needs met. But when it's about God and other people, God always takes care of what we need. And I've realized that. But for me, it's taking time to realize if I'm gonna have an authentic faith, that means that every day God's spirit's gonna have to remind me that today is not about me about what God wants to do and that's why we prayed last week remember we asked that God would interrupt our lives that happened to me a few times this week and I caught my own sin nature being irritated by God's interruption and then I was like ah oh, I prayed for this I asked for this and then I thank God for it we need to do that allow God to interrupt our lives and our faith so just with your eyes closed as we go into worship I, I want you to, to realize again let me remind you when we conclude in, in, in just a little bit here, I, I don't want you to leave this place thinking, ah, I just, I gotta go do more. What I want you to leave this place is thinking, I just need to go deeper. I need to go deeper in my faith in Jesus. I need to go deeper in his grace. I need to open up more areas of my life and humility before him. Because when I look in my box of faith, I'm not seeing all those things, but I know that I can't bring them in and just plop them in the box. I I know that Jesus has to produce those things in my life as I surrender more of myself to him. So, Lord Jesus, this week I pray, Lord, first and foremost, don't let us walk out with a religious spirit that says I have to work harder. But let us walk out with a relational spirit that says I need to know you more. I need to know you deeper, I need to be transformed I I need the work of your spirit in my life Lord, We, we need that, we ask that you would do that, that your spirit would work deep within us so that Lord, we don't get the script of what to do but the Holy Spirit begins to Lord work in us in such a way that we are different because you are at work in us so Lord Jesus, give us a true deep and profound authentic faith that is real because you live in us in your name